Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul announced Thursday night that she and legislative leaders have a conceptual agreement on a nearly one-month late state budget. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, Hochul called the news conference a couple of hours after senators and assembly members left the Capitol for the weekend, saying there were too many unresolved issues to approve a spending plan this week. The governor, who appeared alone without the two Democratic legislative leaders, says there was sufficient agreement with the legislature on major items to announce the conceptual accord. We agreed that we're at a point where the major decisions have been made, There's obviously fine-tuning that has to be done. That'll be worked out over the weekend, but literally bills can start being printed. And we're on a path to shutting down the budget process. The governor had to give up some core elements of her agenda, including a plan to build 800,000 new housing units over the next decade. She blamed the legislature for resisting elements of the plan that would have allowed the state to override local zoning laws. But she says they will try again in the remaining weeks of the session. Hochul did achieve one of her top priorities. She convinced lawmakers to make more changes to the state's controversial bail reform laws. It will give judges more power to set bail in cases of serious crimes by eliminating a requirement that they seek the least restrictive means to ensure a defendant comes back for court dates. Hochul says that clause was leading to a higher recidivism rate. The agreement removes what is known as the least restrictive means standard which many judges have said tied their hands. It gives judges discretion. They need to hold violent criminals accountable. The governor had sought the opening of 100 additional charter schools. The final agreement will yield 22 schools. Existing public schools will receive a record $24 billion in state aid, finally fulfilling a court order that requires all schools to be fairly funded. The legislature did not agree to a proposal by Hochul to raise tuition at public colleges and universities. The governor says there's agreement to raise the state's minimum wage to $17 an hour and tie future increases to the rate of inflation. And there's a court on a plan to help curb climate change. It includes a ban on gas hookups of new homes by 2025 and for all new buildings by 2028. It also includes $400 million in subsidies to low-income households struggling to pay utility bills and to help upgrade to more energy-efficient heating systems. And, Hochul says, the budget includes new powers for state agencies to close down illegal cannabis shops operating across the state. The governor says they are unfairly competing with the emerging state-created legal marijuana industry, where just five retail outlets are currently allowed to sell the drug. They weren't even able to allow to do searches because we only had civil penalties and not criminal penalties. The agencies would have the authority to conduct searches and seizure of illegal products and impose fines and bring criminal charges under the state's tax laws. 
Representatives for Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie and Senate Leader Andrea Stork-Cousins confirmed that a conceptual agreement has been reached on the spending plan, but they did not say why the leaders were not at the announcement. They also could not immediately provide a timetable for when bills might be voted on. An assembly spokesman also offered the caveat that, while there is an overall accord, the details of many issues remain unresolved. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and state officials appeared this week at Albany Medical Center to announce the opening of a new evidence storage facility. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. New York State Office of Victim Services Director Elizabeth Cronin says the agency has opened a secure facility where it will store sexual offense evidence collection kits that have not been released to law enforcement custody. So that um, in the event that people want to have their kits tested, that the evidence will be there um, and they can make an informed decision about that. Um, you know, we expect that people will respond to um, an assault in a way that we think that they should respond, and that's not how things happen. And we have to be um, supportive of people's decisions um, in whatever way they choose to make them. The facility is at an undisclosed location. It's climate-controlled, and Cronin says 525 items have already been sent there. State law requires unreported kits to be stored for 20 years from the date of collection. When construction finishes on a second wing of the building, it will be able to store 26,000 items of evidence. We established this facility to comply with a relatively recent state law that expanded retention of sexual assault evidence collection kits from 30 days to 20 years. And that was a recognition that many victims of assault are not in any position um, to make critical decisions about what they want to do with evidence that is collected in that short period of time. Moreover, we found that um, there was an inconsistency among medical, medical providers as to how long they kept the evidence. So um, some disposed of it after 30 days, some held on for a year, some held on to it infinitely. And so there wasn't any consistency for victims to know what is going to happen with my evidence. Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple says the facility will be a boon to law enforcement statewide. When the law changed, we actually had to go out on the local taxpayers and purchase large refrigerators to store and hold our, our rape kits. Now, as I sit here talking to you right now, we have well over 100, and the oldest one being since 1999. So, obviously, there's a lot. Some of these smaller agencies, it's, it's almost impossible for them to do this. So I'm super excited to see the state step up, have a large facility where these can all be maintained, protect our survivors and our victims. And again, people may change their mind down the road. You know, maybe it's not something you can make a decision on in, in 20 minutes or an hour or a day. But to be able to know that this is there is, is a really good peace of mind for a lot of our victims. Cronin says $4.3 million in funding for the facility came from the state. The building was already standing and an additional $1.2 million went toward renovation. Another $1.5 million in funding was appropriated to build the wing. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal People-Stokes this week about gun violence as we approach the May anniversary of the Buffalo mass shooting at a top supermarket. Since then, we've seen what seems like a never-ending series of mass shootings, incidents, and other shootings involving people at the wrong place at the wrong time. Is it just that America is the land of the gun, and in so many cases it's combined with a history of racism? How do we stop this madness, if at all? Well, that's a really great question, and you know what? I wish I had the answer. I mean, I do not know what the answer is. I do know that um, it's very hurtful, and people are still hurting as a result of it in the Buffalo community as well as they are in other communities. I mean, there are people, still parents from Sandy Hook, that haven't got answers and why their children are no longer with them. And so I, um, I am at a loss to understand Americans who are literally imploding on ourselves and right now, I don't see that there is a desire for that to happen. You can tell by the madness that's going on in Congress right now that we're nowhere even near thinking about banning the use of assault weapons in this country. By the way, Alan, if I could just say this, because I don't think we're anywhere near of acknowledging or dealing with racism and sexism either <laughs> across the country. People are wanting to ban books and stop folks from being taught African-American studies. And it's just going from bad to worse. And I actually feel like there is an impetus for this. And I think it comes from former president who just kind of co-signed all of it and says it's okay for it to happen. Stood on stage in front of thousands of people bullying folks on a regular basis. And so everybody else feels like they can do that now. Now you have all these stand your ground laws. People can't even ring the wrong doorbell nowadays without being shot. So we're, we're in a bad place in this country. And the solution to it is beyond me, but I do stay in prayer. Well, I think prayer is good, but do you have any other answers? I don't. Ban assault weapons, that's one. Get rid of stand your um, ground rules that allow people to walk around openly carrying weapons or shoot somebody that walks on their porch or mistakenly drives in their driveway. <laughs> Those things should not be allowed to happen. But again, I don't see anything at the federal level that leads me to believe that that's going to change anytime soon. State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes speaking with Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Chartalk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The worldwide crush of people seeking asylum from disasters and violence is being felt in Plattsburgh, New York. Last month, the U.S. and Canada closed a loophole in a treaty that brought tens of thousands of migrants to tiny Roxham Road in Clinton County try to claim asylum in Canada. Canada is now detaining and deporting most people who try to cross unofficially at Roxham Road and elsewhere back to the U.S. Many of those migrants find themselves back in Plattsburgh at the Mountain Mart convenience store where they first arrived by bus from New York City. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Kara Chapman has more. 
When I walk into the Plattsburgh Mountain Mart, a family of five from Turkey is speaking with two Canadian volunteers. The volunteers are with Bridges Not Borders, a Quebec-based refugee advocacy organization. They're trying to connect the father, mother, and their three daughters with a place to stay for the night. I approach the Turkish man, and he agrees to speak with me via Google Translate. He doesn't want to give his name because he and his family have an asylum claim in the United States. He tells me they lost their home and relatives during an earthquake in Turkey. They traveled to Mexico, then through the U.S. to try to claim asylum in Canada because he has family there. But they were detained, then deported. We went to the Roxham Gate and they let us in there. They kept us for two days. They deported us even though we said we had no other place to stay. As I continue speaking with the Turkish father, his two older daughters wander about the store. He and his wife take turns holding the third, a baby. I ask him if there's anything he thinks is important for people to know about what they're going through. We are in a desperate situation, but I don't think the authorities fully understand this. They misunderstand us. This man and his family are not the only asylum seekers sent back by Canada who come into the mountain mart. There's a man from the Democratic Republic of the Congo who says he has a common-law wife in Canada. A family from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela who plan to make their way to a friend in New Jersey. A Haitian man and a Congolese woman who linked up while they were in custody. Wendy Ayat, one of the volunteers, helps me translate when I speak to the Congolese woman, who also doesn't want to be identified. I ask her, what's next? She needs to get a place where she can rest, go to a hotel and recover a little bit before she can obviously see clearly what she's going to do next. The woman says she has a sibling in Texas. She says now she has no choice but to apply for asylum in the United States. Her eyes well up with tears. How do you feel right now? Comment vous vous sentez maintenant? Un peu triste. Oui, oui. Nous, on est triste pour vous. On est triste pour toutes les personnes refoulées. She says she feels sad, and uh, I said, well, we feel very sad for you. Grace Bubeck, the other volunteer, brings the woman and most of the other people we've met to a local hotel. She says it's heartbreaking to see people get turned back from Canada and not understand why. They don't have a plan because their plan was to go to Canada. And, you know, we can do a little bit to help them. But, you know, they're basically left to their own devices. Bubeck says asylum seekers waiting out their claims in Canada have access to all kinds of support. Housing, a social worker, education for their children. That's not a guarantee in the United States. When they're sent back here, some still have money left over to buy a bus ticket or get food and a hotel room. Others, though, used everything they had to get to Canada and have nothing left. Kathy Sager is the president of Plattsburgh Cares. She says her organization was inundated with calls when the Roxham Road loophole closed. Literally hundreds of people were in need of immediate care because... They spend their last dollars to make this trip, and the word did not get out in time that Roxham Road was shutting down. Sager estimates that Plattsburgh Care spent about a third of its funding to help around 60 people that first week. 
Now, they're still helping when they get calls, but also working with other groups, trying to get helpful information posted at the Mountain Mart, and advocating for a coordinated response at all levels of government. This is a countywide emergency that we need support with from our county and from the state and from the federal government. So we are appealing on all those levels to create a coordinated response so that people don't fall through the cracks. Part of that effort is Clinton County's Department of Social Services, which administers what are called safety net programs to migrants who are eligible. Deputy Commissioner Rich Holcomb says those can include non-U.S. citizens who are, quote, known to immigration authorities. According to Holcomb, since Clinton County is on a major route to Montreal, it's not a new thing for undocumented people to seek safety net assistance. What is new is just the number of individuals presenting themselves. Holcomb says DSS used to see one or two applications a quarter. Since the border changes went into effect, that number has grown to two to three per day. He says the county has a limited supply of emergency housing, and DSS primarily assists by providing transportation that gets people to other resources. Holcomb says he thinks the agency can handle the current level of need. It's new, but it's not. (laughs) You know, we've dealt with crisis like this before. Um, and we will just deal with it in the same fashion, which is why we have guidelines and rules and regulations. Is It, it kind of makes it easier to do this type of work that way. Holcomb says most of the migrants getting safety net assistance aren't staying in the area, and it seems the number of people coming here with the goal of crossing into Canada is decreasing. The official numbers appear to support that theory. In the three months before the changes went into effect, Canadian police detained more than 1,000 people crossing unofficially into Quebec each week. In the first two weeks after the changes were implemented, 222 were processed. Of those, about three-quarters were sent back to the U.S. Michael Cashman is supervisor of the town of Plattsburgh. He says asylum seekers' presence in the community is a federal issue that requires a federal response, including resources for the state and county. And it continues to be a crisis from the standpoint that a plan needs to be well formulated that if there were a surge, um, and while we've not seen it yet, but should there be a surge uh, in numbers, that it can be upscaled rapidly. I reached out to the Department of Homeland Security about whether the federal government is monitoring the impact of asylum seekers, has a plan to inform or support them, or plans to provide assistance to Clinton County and New York State. I didn't hear back. I also requested interviews with Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand about the issue. Stefanik's office didn't get back to me, but Gillibrand sent a statement on her behalf. The senator said, quote, The situation in the North Country shows why it is critical that we pass comprehensive immigration reform. For Ayat, one of the volunteers at the Mountain Mart, the plight of asylum seekers is a lesson to all Canadians who take for granted safety and stability in their country. Um, we have a great deal of difficulty imagining that this could happen to us, that, you know, the, 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 the world could turn in such a way so that all of a sudden we're the ones who have to flee. We're the ones who are not safe in our country and really have no choice but to leave. Ayat says her biggest fear now is that asylum seekers will use human traffickers to get into Canada through dangerous terrain. And as for those who are caught and turned back, she says it should be the government, not organizations like hers, who help them plot their next steps. North Country Public Radio's Kara Chapman.
listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. President Biden made it official this week he's running for re-election in 2024. Biden is hoping his legislative achievements and a call to work together will resonate with voters who remain bitterly divided and dissatisfied with Washington. Biden would be 86 at the end of his second term and faces a possible 2020 rematch against former President Donald Trump or a matchup with a number of other ambitious Republicans. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus sat down with New York State Democratic Party Chair Jay Jacobs for his analysis. Well, of course, this wasn't a surprise. We, we've known this is coming for some time now. And um, I, you know, I, I think it's uh, going to be a very good uh, campaign. And I think he's going to do very well, and I'm happy that he's running. What do you think his message should be to voters? Well, I think first and foremost, I think he's got to make clear with voters what he has already accomplished. You know, there's, there's such misinformation out there. Um, I, I think Joe Biden, if you take a look at the record, take a look at what he has delivered, uh, never mind infrastructure, turning the economy around, 12 million jobs created since he took office. I think you see this is uh, uh, these are the hallmarks of a very successful presidency so far. People are not getting that. That doesn't resonate yet. So I think the campaign has to really nail down with the public what he has gotten done. And um, and it is significant. And then secondly, what he's going to do. Um, and, you know, he talks about restoring the soul of America or the fight for the soul of America. And he talks about um, ensuring freedoms uh, for all Americans and equal opportunity. And these are important uh, pieces of, uh, of a campaign. I, I know that for the most part, voters vote. Uh, based on their pocketbooks. So the economy and what he's doing for the economy and how he's going to continue to see the economy improve, I think will be very important. I think that, you know, Republicans spent a lot of time in the last election pointing out how gas prices have gone up and how inflation is soaring. And now they've gone mute. They're quiet. Why? Gas prices are coming down. And so, you know, you have to focus on those economic issues. And I, I think that that'll lead to our success. What would you say to people who might not have a problem with President Biden, might like some of the things he's done, but think that, you know, mid-80s to 86 is just too old for this job? Well, you know, I don't want him representing the United States at the Olympics either, but that's not what we're looking for here. We're looking for someone to represent us and to lead us uh, here in this country. Look, I've been with President Biden on three different occasions uh, not too many months ago in, in, in the uh, fall and late fall. Um, not for a long period of time, but certainly enough time to, to see him in action uh, with myself and with other people that I was there with. You know, this guy's on the ball. I know all the things that um, you know have been said about him and uh, that they're trying to make people believe um, that he slowed down. I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it live and in person. And, and I, I know people who've been with him. And they haven't seen it. And, and you see the schedule that he runs. Uh, he was just over in Ireland, one event after the other, one speech after another. The guy is always hopping on board Air Force One, going all over the country, meeting people, making speeches. The guy's, you know, he's a vigorous guy. And, and you know, 80 for one person isn't 80 for everybody. You know, so all I'll say to you is, you know, we talk about all of this, uh, you know, what we shouldn't discriminate, we shouldn't prejudge and all the rest of it. And yet so many people are willing to do it when it comes to age. And I just don't think that's right and fair. When he demonstrates he can't do the job, well, I'll take another look at it. But right now, 
every indication I've had, never mind the results that he's been able to accomplish that you know other presidents you know struggled with, but he has gotten done. Um, the respect that he has uh, and admiration, frankly, from other foreign leaders, what he's been able to do in, in helping Ukraine and and uh, uh, building up the NATO alliance and tightening up all of these things demonstrate to me a guy who's very capable and i'm not worried about you know where his age goes as long as uh, you know he feels that he's healthy and capable uh, and, and and he demonstrates it i think uh, we should take him at his word and we should you know let our eyes you know be the judge and you know i i, I think uh, he's fine some of former President Trump's rivals for the GOP nomination have made the point that they think Biden can beat Trump a second time, but might not be able to beat a different candidate. Do you have a, a choice candidate on the Republican side that you think Biden does better against? And do you think that that argument bears any truth? Well, Trump is the devil we know. So I, I think I would agree with them in the first instance that I don't see how Trump you know, grows his 74 million votes, which is what he got in 2020. I don't, I don't see how you get 74 million in one votes. Uh, I don't see who else would now say they want Trump. So I think he's kind of capped, and I think my guess is that number is going to diminish. But uh, and I think that Biden's number, he was in about 82, 81, 82 uh, million. I think that can go up a little bit. So I I, um, I do see uh, that argument. And when it comes to other candidates on the Republican side, you know, look look at uh, look at the DeSantis uh, train. It's becoming a train wreck. And you know, in the beginning, when DeSantis was out there, everybody was shaking in their boots about DeSantis. Now, all of a sudden, you know, once a person gets close to running for president, he gets the scrutiny um, that you get running for that office, different than scrutiny for any other office um, in, in the country. And all of a sudden, you find out the guy's not likable. Uh, he's got a glass jaw. He's doing a lot of stupid things that are, are aggravating people unnecessarily. He doesn't He doesn't get his politics right. And, you know, he's imploding. So I'm not that worried about the, you know, the fresh new thing that the Republicans are going to put out there, because every one of those fresh new things are on, a, on the radical side when it comes to women's reproductive rights. They're on the radical side when it comes to gun control. They're on the radical side when it comes to economic issues, particularly so many of them uh, want to uh, uh, reduce or even eliminate Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. I mean, these aren't things that are going to resonate with voters, and I don't care who they put up. So, you know, bottom line of it is the Republican Party better straighten itself out, you know, understand that uh, overwhelmingly most uh, voters in America are moderate, uh, either moderate left or moderate right, uh, but certainly not extreme. And this Republican Party is run by a group of extremists. So I, I don't care who they put up. I, I think Joe Biden's going to clean their clock. That's New York State Democratic Party Chair Jay Jacobs speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Shartok. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2317. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.